You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, I've got a special treat for myself by having Josh Pitterman here. And for those of you who are thinking, Josh Pitterman, is he a new architect? He's not. We're here today because he has come as part of our performer series and he will be starring as the Phantom, even though it's taking him a little longer to do that in Sydney in August 2022 and then in Melbourne in October 2022. Welcome, Josh. Thanks so much for having me, Elizabeth. Josh, before we get started on your performance and how you look at buildings and how they sort of affect your performance, I wondered whether you could tell me a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up. Always a good place to start. I grew up in a very, very loving household in Melbourne. My parents are actually children of Holocaust survivors. And so I grew up with a with a pretty strong Jewish heritage. We're not not particularly religious, but it was very centered around family, love, culture, supportiveness. And I think when your parents grow up in that environment of having to work so hard to make a life for yourself coming out effectively as refugees, I was afforded every possibility because they'd worked for their success and they wanted to make sure that I could have everything that they they couldn't. So whether it was sport or music, I was just so supported, my sister as well, as a child growing up and that that continued all the way all the way through and and to be honest music wasn't a huge part of my life I played a bit of piano growing up a bit of guitar but it wasn't a huge part of my life I was a big um, Aussie rules guy big tennis big cricket and it was just sport 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 like so many Aussie kids <laughs> and then I just really got into Michael Jackson quite late at school like year 10 and Learned how to moonwalk because that's what you got to do. It's hard, you know. I, I know. Mean, if anyone's tried just to take it off, it's a no. lot harder than it. I had to dissect. It was like old VHS that I ultimately destroyed because I'd <laughs> rewound and fast forward and pause and like so many times. But I got the moonwalk down and I did it in the school cafeteria once. Oh. And the director of the school musical just like tapped me on the shoulder and said, you, you will be very useful. And, and so I auditioned for Fame, the musical, got a role in it and just was like, what have I been missing my whole life? What? This, this is, is in year 10. Uh, year 11. Year 11, wow. Yeah, yeah. And then I was, so I changed all my subjects. Like I thought I was going to do physiotherapy or something in like sports medicine. or So I changed from like chemistry and maths methods and all these sort of things into theatre. And instead of doing maths, I was in the music school singing show tunes and stuff like that. And so year 12 comes around and all I want to do is a school musical. It was Jesus Christ Superstar. I played uh, Judas. It was oh, great. Wow. And then found my way off to studying musical theatre in a sort of turn of events in 12 months. Like much to the despair of my dad at that time was like, what are you doing? You know, I was going to say Is this that. a fad type thing? It hasn't been a fad. It's been a great 20 years you know, yeah. almost. Yeah. And so then you went and studied that and then where did you end up? How did you sort of land that first role? It took, it took a bit of time. I mean, I, as soon as I finished uni, I, I came from a fair way back, but I had that sports mentality of, 
if you train hard and work hard mm. and your discipline, that covers much more than talent. Mm. So while others were at the pub getting pretty pretty loose during the week at uni, I was like practicing my scales and, and all of that. I was really into my singing. And so by the end of uni, I was playing the lead roles where at the start, I was one of the weaker guys in it. And so I did an opera, Madam Butterfly had a very small role in an opera for a little bit straight out of uni. And then I went to Tokyo Disney for nine months and did like a Broadway jazz show. And that was really challenging. That taught me about sustainability and repetition and mm. you know you do the show like 20 something times a week so we never did a show in at uni more than like 10 times no. so a thousand shows later after a Japanese contract I was like okay I'm done with with Disney and I auditioned for the 10 tenors mm. and then toured around the world which I think we'll talk about later on because I got to perform in some of the most wonderful opera houses and concert houses and theatres all around the world and really learnt a bit more, though I didn't appreciate it at the time as much, about the diversity of sound and acoustics in each venue and how important that is. Mm-hmm. And so after that, I um, I actually had a, had a moment where I'd auditioned for Phantom of the Opera while I was on tour with them and got an understudy role um, back here in Australia. It was like the 2007 eight nine production with yeah. Anthony Waller and uh, and couldn't get out of the contract. And then when I found out West Side Story was going to be auditioning, I was like, okay, I can't be in this position again. Tony is a role I've dreamt about for a long time. I need to actually leave the group. So I left the group, I took a punt. And so West Side Story in 2010 was was my first lead role of Tony. And I'm really glad I was sort of courageous enough and vulnerable in some way to jump ship and, and try out for that with the risk of unemployment again. Yes. you know, 10 tenors was quite a safe job. I was going to say, and what was the dynamic like in 10 tenors? Just from a, I guess, more of an audience perspective, how does that work when you've got... You've got 10 egos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's a challenge to work with. Yeah. Everyone wants the great solo and Nessun Dormer and yeah. all of this sort of stuff. People understand their roles within, within the group. There's voices that are more suited to different music, but I, I guess it would be the closest thing to sort of a music footy team right you got the 10 guys then you have a couple of offstage guys who come in if anyone's ill or we rotate around then you've got sound and lighting and tour manager and it's sort of like 17 to 20 men on tour buses like like you can just imagine the sort of vibe guys in their 20s a lot of single guys there was late night boozing and playstation in the back of the bus and you know the buses with beds and all that sort of stuff so um Traveling through Europe and the States. and I mean, it's for a 22 to 24-year-old, which I was, I mean, this is living the dream. Yeah. Hashtag living the dream. So it, it was super fun. But not only did I really want to pursue something a bit more solo in a musical theatre career, I really missed acting. Yep. And so that was part of the reason for leaving to explore a role, to play a role in a show and and have that challenge night after night of dissecting character and going into the depths of of someone else transcending into another human for that period of time, which I really hadn't done since uni and I, and I missed. So I'm really glad that I took that risk, as I said. And, and then from, from West Side Story, it's been sort of the ups and downs of a, of a career. The thing about playing roles is that you often don't go back to being in the ensemble. And so I do have to wait for the right roles to present themselves. And I've been lucky enough that I've sort of managed to have a quite a diverse career in terms of styles of musicals. So West Side Story is one, but Cats I've done yes. and then Hairspray I did over in the UK. Beautiful, the Carol King musical. Yes. And then obviously Phantom back over in London has been sort of the greatest role I've ever done to play that the masked man in the original production in Her Majesty's in, in London was like that that was the dream mm. when I when I started mucking around in the music school at, in high school when I was 17. 
it was Phantom and Lame is, but but mainly Phantom. So it's been an amazing journey. Like, I, and I've been so fortunate. It's, it always comes back to my family and my mates and those who have supported me along the way. You can't get through the roller coaster of an arts career without having great, great people around you. And I've got was, the best I was ones. Going to say that as well because I guess after you finished, how what was the time difference between West Side Story and Cats? Four years. Yeah. So what? So Hairspray was in between. Okay. So there was a year of that. There was An Office and a Gentleman, which was a musical that was here in, in Sydney. Which I remember that. I yes. did the workshop of and ended up doing the, the original production. It bombed after about six weeks. I'd actually turned down 22 months of playing Tony all around the world in West Side Story to do that brand new musical. Oh. Because to do a musical from first table read in a workshop to take it to on stage is, is sort of our dream because yes. you're often interpreting someone else's performance in musical yep. theatre. So to originate something that's what I went with and it was the wrong risk you know sometimes you take the right one sometimes take the wrong one you know so I think so many of us you want to take those risks but you did describe it as a as a roller coaster and obviously in the last two years you've had more than a roller coaster but what being so I guess young at the start of your career what do you do after those setbacks I mean where's your mindset on that Mm, that that's a a huge one You, you I think you learn by being in the fire and, right. and there's there's no other way to learn just by being in the situation. The hard thing for me, I think, doubly was when Cats was starting, I was splitting up with my wife at the time then. I got married in my 20s too. So not only was I having a sort of big career at that time, I was I got married at 24, 25. And so there was a lot of stuff that I was finding challenging in my life. Thankfully, the pain and the and the mud that you go through with, with divorce, whoever's listening, I'm sure there's people out there that have been through divorces, if not just breakups, they can be really, really hard. Mm. And so that cat's journey and the sort of the last six years through that, I knew I had to do some work on myself and I really attended to sort of mindfulness in terms of meditation, but also terms of, and, and quite, I guess, sacredly, like I, I really always put aside the morning, if not the morning and the afternoon to meditate daily and have done for like six years. It's a huge part of my life. And I think that's held me in incredible stead in terms of just obtaining some, not just calm and less stress in times of great stress, which we've had, but just to to deal with issues with a level of sort of like awareness, discernment, try not to be too reactive mm. and try and respond. They don't always nail it lots of times. So you don't you don't get it right all the time, but that's... That's that's life. It's interesting what you're saying because I just think with age and wisdom and experience, there's a lot of that overriding intuition. Yeah. Um, but I think when you're really young. Yeah, you just don't know. Like, yes. And you're just thrown in, into it. So I look at like especially young athletes mm-hmm. and obviously AFL is a huge love for me and I look at 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are thrown into a huge pressure situations and they can only learn from mistakes really. It's hard to learn from success I think I guess you can learn how to be more grounded and humble through success but but yeah you you, you just got to make those mistakes and I've made plenty of them and and the thing is I know I'm going to keep making it because I'm 36 now and many more years <laughs> of performing left in me so many more mistakes to make and things to learn from but I'm curious as to what is your underlying mantra then in terms of keeping yourself is it that things will be okay or what what do you tell yourself to remain so optimistic yeah, things will be as, as they are meant to be. I think the most important thing that I've learned across the time is that I'm not the role that I'm playing and my self-worth can't be caught up in 
being I am the Phantom. I'm not the Phantom. I get to play the Phantom and it's beautiful and wonderful and there'll be other roles I get to play that hopefully will be equally as beautiful and, and wonderful. But my self-worth isn't determined by that so that when it's taken away, I'm not less a person. I'm lots of other things. I'm compassionate, kind, I'm loving, um, nuts, I'm very passionate. And so so that's, I think that's the thing that, that you learn. And I think for a lot of artists, we do get our identity and self-worth caught up in, in our work. And how many times you go to, I've been to an opening night party or a, just at a reception or something. Oh, what, what are you doing now? What do you, so what do you, what's, got, what's going on? What, what are you doing? Not how are you? Yes. Yeah. How, how are you going? How are you doing? And I yeah. think it resonates, Josh, because everyone, whether you're a CEO or an architect, you can also be defined by that totally. role as well. You totally. know, and everyone pins their success to that. Yeah. So. And I, I learned some of that from a great mindset coach, a guy called Ben Crow. But often I talk about it too this idea that we get, we do get wrapped up in the human doing, and we forget that fundamentally we're human beings. So let's focus on the being before the doing. Yeah. Yeah. So if we just took um, back to, I just wanted to capture when you were touring yeah. and, and probably, well, firstly, I'd love to hear how the Phantom role in London came about because that was your dream role. Yeah. Could you talk me through that experience? Yeah, it was It was ultimately, um, you know, this might be a bit esoteric some, but I, I firmly believe it was just the power of manifestation mm-hmm. and putting all the ducks in a row to Control as much as I control. So I remember having a meeting with a, a great producer friend of mine. And 2018, I got back from the most wonderful, post-beautiful Carol King musical holiday. Like I went to Europe and uh, met the love of my life and, and just had, had the best time for about eight to ten weeks. And I got back, I felt really fresh and ready to take on a new challenge. Yeah. So I sat down, we had dinner. And he's like, what would, you, what would you like to do next in terms of? Musical, I said, I've always loved to play the Phantom. I reckon I'm maybe still a bit young. He's like, no way. You are prime now for it. And I was like, cool. I was so inspired after the conversation. I called a music supervisor, director friend of mine um, called Guy Simpson. And Guy has been looking after Phantom in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia for the best part of 30 years. And I said, hey, I'd love to have some coachings. So we just got to just working on the material. Mm-hmm. No audition coming up, no you know, no anything. He was looking after a production in Brazil at that time. And he's like, we should learn it in Portuguese as well. I was just like, sort of like an opera singer would do, just learn a role. Okay. And so I was just, just studying it with no knowledge of when it could happen. Anyway, I had this great opportunity in 2019 to sing Nessun Dorma. And folks are listening, it's on my Instagram somewhere if you slide mm. through the old IGTV. <laughs> and at, at the Australia Day live concert with uh, with John Foreman. Yes. And it was just this sort of um, out-of-body moment where so much of, I feel like, things I've worked on in my career were working towards a moment like that. It was just amazing and I, I sung as well as I could in that moment. I was so proud of myself and because we're so critical of yes. ourselves performers it's always a way to look at something but I was so proud of what I did under that sort of pressure and anyway that footage got sent over to the casting directors of Phantom over in the UK and they were like if he's here we would love to see him for an audition turns out the love of my life I just met Lottie is Scottish who has been living in London for many years she was there in Australia Day and she was just going back to the UK I'm like well, I'll come with you so I went back and this audition process started from sort of Feb 2019 and fast forward to July. So it started in February yep. and then you began the role in July. Yeah. 
I've gone rehearsals then. Yeah. But, and just for the, for our listeners and everyone, how crazy? Yeah, crazy. But also, what is the process? I mean, because I mean, when you think of London and Broadway, it's a little bit different to Australia because we normally have shows that come. Whereas yeah. in in those two theatre meccas, they're always running. When do these things come up? Or? Yeah. I mean, for Phantom, it's just celebrated its 35th anniversary. Mm. Other than COVID, nothing has locked it down. Yes. Um, so they the process is a recasting process, but they're always looking for something. Right. Some, if the guy who played it before me was more of a sort of older rock yes. kind of guy. And so I think they were up for something younger. Okay. So when I had that conversation, I thought I was a bit young. Being young was actually good yep. for this interpretation they wanted going in and they were looking for something a bit more classical. Okay. Having gone down a bit of a rock avenue, or a bit more contemporary avenue. So it's just when things align for you. If I'd auditioned the following year, maybe they'd already had that interpretation. They were looking for something more contemporary again. So in vocal sound. So I was, I was just really fortunate. It was just supposed to happen like that. And unfortunately, after a couple of hundred shows, it, it COVID ha- occurred and I, I didn't get to play the role again over there. And that was deeply saddening but every every cloud has a silver lining and then you know we came back to Australia for um, Lottie and I, and I and just for what was supposed to be six to eight weeks bit of a holiday I had a couple of gigs this was December January and then I got a call from Opera Australia saying we're doing Phantom here could you hang around could you could you oh, stay and do so it, it wasn't so it- we moved our lives over here got all our stuff from our apartment sent down to Australia worked on a visa for for Lottie and so excited and then three days out from rehearsal again. And so if you don't have a level of discernment, it doesn't mean I don't feel like I was shattered when, when I lost the role in London to COVID. I was equally, um, if not more shattered though, when when they when they said that they had to postpone Phantom or and you don't know whether things are going to get up again. That's mm. the landscape of the theatre world. So it broke my heart. So I feel things very deeply, but my ability to sort of move through that, I don't sit and sort of woe is me. I was like, what's 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 next? And and then a, a month later, a couple of months later, announced new date. So now I'm looking forward to to next year. And that's yes. the roller coaster. It's it's just how high and how low you get, I think, changes over the years. Do you let yourself have that like sit in the pain though? Do you Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I was a fetal position on the floor, like yeah. crying, like bawling my eyes out. Um so when I yeah when I got the call it was just like like it it broke me in that moment so yeah so of course it is, I of it course is really I, hard and, and and I think it was Glenn Ondoyle that said feelings are meant to be felt and I think through no fault of anyone's own but when you grow up there's always that sometimes with parents there's that stiff upper lip and keep going and, I, yeah. and I've really tried to be with my own children yep this is a moment that sucks for you yeah you, know, you need to sit in this moment for a little bit because yeah. you, I think if you don't, then it's harder to maybe come out of it. Uh, I think so too. And and I think we're done with, especially for men in this country, a sort of mm. suppressive, repressive yes. culture. Like we're, we're just done with that. And when we see it, we call it out because it leads to all sorts of other things that are not healthy in relationships and in workplaces. And it's getting called out time and time mm. again. You know, we need to, we need to be vulnerable. Mm. And a part of that is sharing that stuff. What I did find quite um, amusing for myself and sort of looking at the situation was when I was broken on the floor crying, I'm like, oh, my God, it's the final layer of Phantom. Where <laughs> Phantom Christine's left him for a, for a 
life is imitating art. Yeah, always, always. But I'm like, also, I'm like, hmm. Some good little gems to use and in rehearsals. I think, right. you know, so draw back on those. Yeah, feelings. well, that's all we've got. We've just got this sort of vase of our own experiences to to draw upon. So, yeah. And then, okay, so let's go back to traveling around the world and all the different places that you have have performed in. What do you notice? How does how does it impact your performance? Hugely, because sound is everything. As a <laughs> singer, you want to say, "Oh no, I'm just I can feel it where it resonates in my body," and that's that's what over time you're taught to sort of work with not the external that you can't control mm-hmm. but what's happening with your breath and with your resonators in your own vocal mask and your cheeks and all that. But we are we, we are orally designed humans so I'm going to take in the sound and um, it's very affecting. And so performing in incredibly dry theatre spaces through through the <laughs> the middle of America and Midwest and stuff like that. You go, oh, it's really affecting. Like, I'm dry, it's dry, the house is dry. Wow. Whereas I remember some of the most, well, I mean, some of the most beautiful places to perform in. The Melbourne Recital Centre, it's just been built for singing. Every time you open your mouth and there doesn't need to have anything going on, it's just like, oh, there's that perfect level of a little bit of reverb. It's not like I'm in the shower, but I can. You you trust your sound so much. Moscow was amazing. The concert hall in Moscow. Just, I mean, there's such a big history of classical music, and that sound that needs to come, that richness and warmth, and a bit of brightness that that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And so that's just it was just so purpose built for singing. Some of the older theatres, especially yeah. in the UK, Hairspray. I toured all around the UK, and some of the smaller houses, they're more intimate. They're built at a time pre pre mic. Yes. So well, they're all bricks. So. Yeah, yeah. So they're all there, purpose built for just for good singing, mm. for, to, for to be heard in the back the back row without having to shout. Whereas some of the more the the newer theatres and or theatres that aren't purposely designed, like the Regent down in Melbourne, mm. has had to do so much work to make it sound good mm. because it's an old big cinema and it wasn't designed for singing. It was designed for watching. Clark Gable. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm so lucky. I've sort of performed on yeah, all, all continents, really, except for the Arctic. I don't, I'm not in a hurry to get down there and, and do a sort of... Outside, outdoor outside, yeah, outdoors. Oh, Unless it's like with Wim Hof or something, doing like an ice bath. <laughs> that would be cool. Uh, but other than that, no. And then, and then stadiums, they're just the most challenging when you're performing in a big stadium like Stadium Australia or you know, is it SCG a thrill or, though? I mean, I guess the the counterpart of that is is it because it's such a big space and there's so many people. Obviously, that's a thrill. It is a thrill. You're mainly just shitting yourself, right? Okay. And yeah, because I remember I did the anthem at the Ashes uh, at the SCG a couple of years ago and did the whole mic check, did did it all, and um, about two minutes before I was supposed to go out and sing, and everything was great. All the sound was great. Mm. We're just going to mic check. Am I? Nope, can't hear anything. Oh, is your pack turned on? Yep, yep, everything's turned on. Okay, can't hear the track. No, okay, we'll, we'll get back to you. Okay, we've got 30 seconds to go. Can we just do a final? No, I, I still can't hear any, anything. I literally had to wing the whole thing to the backing track and just trust a bit of fallback. But also you're getting the boom from around yeah. the stadium and, and echo effect and delay and all that sort of stuff. The in-ears were doing, there was nothing in my in-ears. So th- just so I so can break really it down hard. for the audience, because I have an idea about what you're talking about, but the main reason you've got the earpiece is so you can hear the music. I so can hear the music and myself and and not hear the crowd sing slightly delayed Laid. back at me or 
or the music around the stadium slightly delay back at me. Mm. I have actually self-sabotaged once singing the anthem at the rugby and I just for a second tuned in to, to the audience and delay. I'm like, oh, hold up, now I'm behind. I'll get back on track, get back. Like, so there was like a second or two where I was out. And so and like, so when you see performers... So mistakes that you make. Yeah, yeah right. You know, yeah, yeah. So when you see performers rip out their earpiece, is that just because something's not working and now they're completely... Yeah, sound's just not cooking yeah. for them. So then they'll go, all right, I'm getting something better from the, the fallback speaker in front of me. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, the, the most enjoyable experiences are in houses mm. that are set up for great sound. Yeah. That's what I think all performers love most when you walk into a space step out onto stage you open your mouth just to have a play but even before you go to mic and you go oh that sort of feeling of like five o'clock on a friday when you sit back down in your really cozy couch or Mm -hmm. and and you've got a glass of red and you just it's like the sigh of contentment (laughs) right absolutely yeah Just going back now to, you mentioned a little bit about during COVID and, and being obviously sporty and, and what, so what did you do? Because I think for me, performers, I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like not be able, not being able to perform, mm. but it is a, such a craft that requires discipline. I mean, it's similar, I guess, to airline pilots as well. Suddenly you've got this. Totally. How do you stay in training for that? I mean, we used to call it, I think it's performance fit or whatever, stage fit. Yeah, stage yeah. fit. I mean, I think I've gone in and out of performance fit. I really mm-hmm. like amped up things early on this year to get myself ready to go back on stage for Phantom. Mm-hmm. And so I was really singing the material a lot. I was in that sort of Phantom zone and... And then afterwards, like, I just I didn't want to sing. So it's like demoralizing. It's such a full, what I've learned is that singing is not just a physical thing. And it's not just an oral thing. It's not, or, and an oral thing. It's a total, it's full everything. It's spiritual, it's emotional, it's mental, it's physical, it's, it's everything. And so it calls upon a lot of one. And, mm. and when you get these sort of repeated crushes, you're just like, nah, I can't sit in my creative power now. I just don't have the energy to create i'm i'm stressed yep and when we're stressed and in a bit of fight or flight like how do we sit into you know something deeper and creative you're just Mm. operating from a sort of fear system yes um so it's very hard to be like calm and that's when we do our best creative work so i mean that was that was this year I, i know that i've performed since march 2020 when phantom closed in london i've performed six times to an audience i'm scared to go back to performing a bit. I've got that bit of anxiety. Yeah. I'm like, not do I still have it? I just like, I need to like relearn the landscape of dealing with, with humans. Mm. The fact is most times I probably sing four or five times a week and at juicy sessions, doing my scales. I do like, cause that's just a discipline I've learned. Right. So, yeah. And I know a lot of singers don't. Yeah. Okay. And then I'll have structured times off. Like I know that this week is a non-singing week and then mm-hmm. like, I like plan it, you know, um, but I'm also a bit nuts with that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I guess I'm curious because you mentioned Wim Hof and I've been doing a lot of his breathing too, so yeah. it gets you into a, a good – I have not mm. gone to the cold plunge though, but some people I what know. What about a cold shower? Uh, that does work. I used to do a lot of ocean swimming, which I feel is as close as it's I'm going to Yes. Yeah. But, uh, that got me through lockdown too. Right, okay. Yeah. Bogey yeah. hole at Bronte. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In the – first lockdown that was something my husband and I could go to we used to swim manly to Shelley but in this one we were more than 5k oh, right. so we couldn't yeah so but I just wondered so are there some 
days where you're just doing breathing as opposed to singing or in terms no. of no? No. 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 Okay. I'll do breath stuff in a Wim halfway, but it's a very different breath tech. Like yes. if you're singing like fully in, let it go. If you're doing that one, yes. it's, you know, the Wim Hof technique, like that's not singing no. technique. You know, singing technique, breathing is far calmer than that. That's a very heated, spicy breath technique. That, yeah, that, right. The Wim okay. Hof technique. Yes, yeah. So it's, it's sort of the way I describe it is like singing should feel like the sound is the, the surf on a surfboard and the breath is the wave and you're just riding. It's in tandem together in this sort of, very interconnected, easy easy way. Yeah. I like that analogy. Yeah. I was just going to just go back, uh, and not in a big way, but you've learned Italian and Spanish. To sing in, yeah. To sing in. Yeah. I okay. mean, when I'm there, when I was in Spain with the 10 tenors, I, I couldn't believe it. After three months, I was like just having convers- conversations about basic sort of things. But yep. And then so when I went to Italy in 18, the the bad thing about being a singer who does sing a lot in languages is that your pronunciation becomes very good. So when you do learn, mm. I was I, and I learned enough. I was like I was speaking to the guy at reception at the hotel about is this restaurant this way and this and and then he started talking to me like saying all this stuff about that and then it started asking me questions about my laundry and stuff. I'm like, okay, we're on a topic where I don't I can't talk about laundry. <laughs> so it gets to but they they assume you speak because yeah, accent becomes quite quite good. So I'm limited. I, yeah. If I had it my way, I would take six months off, live in Tuscany at some point in my life just so I can get fluent. Everyone I think would do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's a part of the something to manifest. Yeah. Just before we go into the hard fire questions and thank you so much, it's been such an absolute joy to hear your journey. Do you have any advice for people that are listening at the moment that perhaps are at the start of, of their career, even if it's not a performer career? Do you yeah. have any from lessons that you've learned? Yeah, I think it's important to dream big because I think it takes as much energy to dream big as, as it does to dream small. But in saying that, you're going to work so hard on your career. Work as hard on yourself and understanding that what sits in you between your ears and your heart and in your soul, that's actually a, a part of your work. And when you can bring that to your work, the doing becomes so much better because the being is so much more expanded. It's beautiful. Thank you. All righty. Shall we go into the fast fire questions? Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Online. Handwriting or typing? Handwriting. When you're journaling or ideas or concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or e-pen? Pen. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Read books. What's important to you, style or substance? Substance. Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? Ooh, TV shows. Squid Game. So good. (laughs) (laughs) Antique or brand new? Antique. Call or text? Call. Travel back in time or into the future? Oh, back in time. (laughs) Exterior or interior? Interior. Video games or board games? Board games. Form or function? Function. With relation to performing complex or simple? Complex. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Josh. (laughs) Thank you so much, Elizabeth. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. 
we are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.